Chapters 4 and 5 of A Comic History of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Comic History of the United States by Bill Nye. Chapter 4 The Plymouth Colony. In the fall of 1620, the pilgrims landed at Plymouth during a disagreeable storm, and, noting the excellent opportunity for future misery, began to erect a number of rude cabins. This party consisted of 102 people of a resolute character, who wished to worship God in a more extemporaneous manner than had been the custom in the Church of England. They found that the Indians of Cape Cod were not ritualistic, and that they were willing to dispose of inside lots at Plymouth on reasonable terms, retaining, however, the right to use the land for massacre purposes from time to time. The pilgrims were honest and gave the Indians something for their land in almost every instance, but they put a price upon it which has made the Indian ever since a comparatively poor man. Half of this devoted band died before spring, and yet the idea of returning to England did not occur to them. No, they exclaimed, we will not go back to London until we can go first class, if we have to stay here two hundred years. During the winter, they discovered why the lands had been sold to them so low. The Indians of one tribe had died there of a pestilence the year before, and so, when the pilgrims began to talk trade, they did not haggle over prices. In the early spring, however, they were surprised to hear the word welcome proceeding from the doormat of Samoset, an Indian whose chief was named Massasoit. A treaty was then made for fifty years, Massasoit taking the same. Canoicus once sent to Governor Bradford a bundle of arrows tied up in a rattlesnake skin. The governor put them away in the pantry with his other curios and sent Canonicus a few bright new bullets and a little dose of powder. That closed the correspondence. In those days, there were no newspapers and most of the fighting was done without a guarantee or side bets. Money matters, however, were rather panicky at the time and the people were kept busy digging claims to sustain life in order to raise Indian corn enough to give them sufficient strength to pull clams enough the following winter to get them through till the next corn crop should give them strength to dig for clams again. Thus, a trip to England and the Isle of Wight looked farther and farther away. After four years, they numbered only 184, counting immigration and all. The colony only needed, however, more people and eastern capital. It would be well to pause here and remember the annoyances connected with life as a forefather. Possibly the reader has considered the matter already. Imagine how nervous one may be, waiting in the hall and watching with a keen glance for the approach of the physician who is to announce that one is a forefather. The amateur forefather of 1620 must have felt proud, yet anxious, about the clam yield also, as each new mouth opened on the prospect. Speaking of clams, it is said by some of the forefathers that the Cape Cod menu did not go beyond codfish and croquettes until the beginning of the 17th century when pie was added by act of legislature. 
Clams are not so restless if eaten without the brisket, which is said to lie hard on the stomach. Salem and Charlestown were started by Governor Endicott, and Boston was founded in 1630. To these various towns, the Puritans flocked, and even now one may be seen in ghostly garments on Thanksgiving Eve, flitting here and there, turning off the gas in the parlor while the family are at tea, in order to cut down expenses. Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay Colonies were united in 1692. Roger Williams, a bright young divine, was the first to interfere with the belief that magistrates had the right to punish Sabbath breakers, blasphemers, etc. He was also the first to utter the idea that a man's own conscience must be his own guide, and not that of another. Among the Puritans there were several who had enlarged consciences, and who desired to take in extra work for others who had no consciences and were busy in the fields. They were always ready to give sixteen ounces to the pound, and were honest, but they got very little rest on Sunday, because they had to watch the Sabbath breaker all the time. The method of punishment for some offenses is given here in the following illustrations. Does the man look cheerful? No, no one looks cheerful. Even the little boys look sad. It is said that the Puritans knocked what fun there was out of the Indian. Did anyone ever see an Indian smile since the landing of the pilgrims? Roger Williams was too liberal to be kindly received by the clergy, and so he was driven out of the settlement. Finding that the Indians were less rigid and kept open on Sundays, he took refuge among them, 1636, and before spring had gained 18 pounds and converted Canonicus, one of the hardest cases in New England, and the first man to sit up till after 10 o'clock at night. Canonicus gave Roger the tract of land on which Providence now stands. Mrs. Anne Hutchinson gave the pilgrims trouble also. Having claimed some special revelations and attempted to make a few remarks regarding them, she was banished. Banishment, which meant a homeless life in a wild land with no one but the Indians to associate with, in those days was especially annoying to a good Christian woman, and yet it had its good points. It offered a little religious freedom, which could not be had among those who wanted it so much they braved the billow and the wild beast, the savage, the drought, the flood, and the potato bug to obtain it before anybody else got a chance at it. Freedom is a good thing. Twenty years later, the Quakers shocked everyone by thinking a few religious thoughts on their own hooks. The colonists executed four of them, and before that, tortured them at a great rate. During dull times, and on rainy days, it was a question among the Puritans whether they would banish an old lady, bore holes with a red-hot iron through a Quaker's tongue, or pitch horseshoes. In 1643, the United Colonies of England was the name of a league formed by the people for protection against the Indians. King Philip's War followed. Massasoit was during his lifetime a friend to the poor whites of Plymouth, as Powhatan had been of those of Jamestown. But these two great chiefs were succeeded by a low set of Indians who showed as little refinement as one could well imagine. Some of the sufferings of the pilgrims at the time are depicted on the preceding pages by the artist, 
Also, a few they escaped. Looking over the lives of our forefathers who came from England, I am not surprised that, with all the English people who have recently come to this country, I have never seen a forefather. End of chapter 4, The Plymouth Colony Chapter 5, Drawbacks of Being a Colonist It was at this period in the history of our country that the colonists found themselves not only banished from all civilization, but compelled to fight an armed foe whose trade was war and whose music was the dying wail of a tortured enemy. Unhampered by the exhausting efforts of industry, the Indian, trained by centuries of war upon adjoining tribes, felt himself footloose and free to shoot the unprotected forefather from behind the very stump fence his victim had worked so hard to erect. King Philip, a demonetized sovereign, organized his red troops, and, carrying no haversacks, knapsacks, or artillery, fell upon the colonists and killed them, only to reappear at some remote point while the dead and wounded who fell at the first point were being buried or cared for by rude physicians. What an era in the history of a country! Gentle women whose homes had been in the peaceful hamlets of England lived and died in the face of a cruel foe, yet prepared the cloth and clothing for their families, fed them, and taught them to look to God in all times of trouble, to be prayerful in their daily lives, yet vigilant and ready to deal death to the general enemy. They were the mothers whose sons and grandsons laid the huge foundations of a great nation and cemented them with their blood. At this time, there was a line of battle 300 miles in length. On one side, the white man went armed to the field or the prayer meeting, shooting an Indian on sight, as he would a panther. On the other, a foe whose wife did the chores and hoed the scattering crops while he made war and extermination his joy by night and his prayer and lifelong purpose by day. Finally, however, the victory came sluggishly to the brave and deserving. One thousand Indians were killed at one pop, and their wigwams were burned. All their furniture and curios were burned in their wigwams, and some of their valuable dogs were holocausted. King Philip was shot by a follower as he was looking under the throne for something, and peace was for the time declared. About 1684, the colony of Massachusetts, which had dared to open up a trade with the West Indies, using its own vessels for that purpose, was hauled over the coals by the mother country for violation of the Navigation Act, and an officer sent over to enforce the latter. The colonists defied him, and when he was speaking to them publicly in a tone of reprimand, he got an ovation in the way of eggs and codfish both of which had been set aside for that purpose when the country was new, and therefore had an air of antiquity which cannot be successfully imitated. As a result, the colony was made a royal appendage, and Sir Edmund Andros, a political hack under James II, was made governor of New England. He reigned under great difficulties for three years, and then suddenly found himself in jail. The jail was so arranged that he could not get out, and so the Puritans now quietly resumed their old form of government. 
This continued also for three years, when Sir William Phipps became the governor under the crown, with one hundred and twenty pounds per annum, and house rent. From this on to the revolution, Massachusetts, Maine, and Nova Scotia became a royal province. Nova Scotia is that way yet, and has to go to Boston for her groceries. The year 1692 is noted mostly for the Salem excitement regarding witchcraft. The children of Reverend M. Paris were attacked with some peculiar disease which would not yield to the soothing blisters and bleedings administered by the physicians of the old school, and so, not knowing exactly what to do about it, the doctors concluded that they were bewitched. Then it was, of course, the duty of the courts and select men to hunt up the witches. This was naturally difficult. Fifty-five persons were tortured, and twenty were hanged for being witches, which proves that the people of Salem were fully abreast of the Indians in intelligence, and that their gospel privileges had not given their charity and Christian love such a boom as they should have done. One can hardly be found now, even in Salem, who believes in witchcraft, though the Cape Cod people, it is said, still spit on their bait. The belief in witchcraft those days was not confined by any means to the colonists. Sir Matthew Hale of England, one of the most enlightened judges of the mother country, condemned a number of people for the offense and is now engaged in doing road work on the streets of New Jerusalem as a punishment for these acts done while on the woolsack. Blackstone himself, one of the dullest authors ever read by the writer of these lines, yet a skilled jurist with a marvelous memory regarding Justinian, said that to deny witchcraft was to deny revelation. Be you a witch? asked one of the judges of Massachusetts, according to the records now on file in the State House at Boston. No, Your Honor, was the reply. Officer, said the court, taking a pinch of snuff, take her out on the tennis grounds and pull out her toenails with a pair of hot pinchers, and then see what she says. It was quite common to examine lady witches in the regular court, and then adjourn to the tennis court, a great many were ducked by order of the court and hanged up by the thumbs, in obedience to the customs of these people who came to America because they were persecuted. Human nature is the same even to this day. The writer grew up with an Irishman who believed that when a man got wealthy enough to keep a carriage and coachman, he ought to be assassinated and all his goods given to the poor. He now hires a coachman himself, having succeeded in New York City as a policeman. But the man who comes to assassinate him will find it almost impossible to obtain an audience with him. If you wish to educate a man to be a successful oppressor, with a genius for introducing new horrors and novelties in pain, oppress him early in life, and don't give him any reason for doing so. The idea that God is love was not popular in those days. The early settlers were so stern, even with their own children, that if the Indian had not given the forefather something to attract his attention, the boy crop would have been very light. Even now, the philosopher is led to ask, regarding the boasted freedom of America, why some measures are not taken to put large fly screens over it.
End of chapter 5, Drawbacks of Being a Colonist.